0: Of, uh, excuse me, the 19th of, is it the 18th or the 19th, Paul? It is the, the 19th.
2: 19th. <laughs> All day, All as my day mom would say. All day long.
0: Yeah. All day long. Okay, so let me, let me just start that again. Um, hey, good morning. Hey, too. It is Mornings with Carmen, and it's Wednesday, the 19th of February. Wow, I just feel like maybe we're just like kind of screaming through this month. Um, good morning. Hopefully, you are not only up in Adam today, but hopefully, you have already had an opportunity to be in the Word of God before we get, th- get out there into the world that he so loves. Let me just lead off with a quick note here about 11 presidential pardons that were issued yesterday by Executive Order of the President of the United States. Uh, always a good opportunity when you hear or read a headline related to um, a word that sure does sound like it could be uh, applied in the Christian life. It could be one of those terms, the word pardon here. It could be used as a term to describe what we experience in terms of God's divine justice. Um, it could be uh, what we experience as grace. And so um, when you're talking today with others about these pardons that were issued by the president, uh, the temptation might be to get down into uh, the weeds of these particular cases and the crimes committed by these particular individuals each and every one of these people absolutely guilty of the crimes of which they were convicted. The pardons are in relationship to um, to sentencing. And so uh, I just think it's important to recognize that from ancient times and certainly in the New Testament era, heads of state exercised the power to pardon. Um, you know, we have on one occasion uh, Jesus standing um, with the possibility of walking free, Uh, the possibility of being released as an act of executive pardon, and instead the crowds called for Barabbas and they called for the crucifixion of Christ. So when the framers of the U.S. Constitution met in Philadelphia in 1687, uh, they included in the Constitution this pardoning power. Uh, The pardoning power is not really well defined in the Constitution. U.S. courts have over the years interpreted this presidential power to pardon, um, modeling it after the power of English monarchs. And that power of English, mar- English monarchs to pardon was in turn understood as a divine right. It was understood as an act of grace that reflected God's ability to pardon sins. So um, the Supreme Court has upheld that in many ways in cases uh, and distinctions over the course of, uh, of decades. And so we arrive at the place today where the president of the United States yesterday uh, used his executive power to pardon 11 duly convicted felons. And so it's a, it is a good opportunity to talk about grace. It is a good opportunity to talk about forgiveness. It is a good opportunity to talk about the divine right. Um, and it is also a good opportunity to talk about justice and to talk about the need for justice and the way that it is carried out uh, in a democracy such as ours. Nobody is above the rule of law. But the president does have a unique power, uh, a unique power to pardon. So we're going to move today into a number of conversations leading off with our friend Daryl Crouch. he is a pastor, uh, and we just love talking with him from time to time about things going on in the world at the intersection of faith and, well, real life. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Me now, Pastor Daryl Crouts. You can find him at the Green Hill Church. You can also find him at crosstide.org. That's his blog site. Daryl, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Carmen.
2: It's great to be with you.
0: Well, it's wonderful to talk with you today. Um, you have a couple of intriguing posts at Crosstide that I thought we might talk about today. One of those is about becoming better pro-lifers. Um, whatever the story you say every person is not only worth protecting, they are worthy of the highest honor. Talk with us about um, the way we might begin to become better pro-lifers today.
2: Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think a lot of us, uh, from a Christian uh, conservative perspective, we understand uh, a lot of what it means to advocate for for people in the public square, and that's really good. And I'm not encouraging anything about backing away from that. Uh, I just think as on a personal level uh, to think more as thoroughly as we can about what it means to be pro-life is really the strongest thing that we can do on a personal level. There are organizations and there are groups and churches and nonprofits that are doing such good work, and we should join those efforts publicly. But uh, many times it's our influence in private conversations. It's our influence around the dinner table that has the most impact. In the pro-life movement over time, and I think to for all of us to to kind of just step into that a little bit farther and say, what does it really mean for me to to be pro-life? Am I thoroughly pro-life? And and so I outlined some of those uh, things in that in that post.
0: Daryl, we've had some conversations here recently um, with women who have abortion as a part of their um, story. These are women who um, you know have since repented of that and. Um, God has really set them free, but and they are all actively engaged in ministries related to um, to that conversation, and yeah. seeing other women, you know, redeemed. Um, every single one of them says one thing about what they overhear in the pews mm. of the Church of America and what they don't hear often enough from the pulpit, and it's just simply the the honest conversation about what abortion is and that it's not unforgivable. And so I think that um, getting to the place where, as pro-life people, we have a more robust conversation about what it means to be pro-life from conception to natural death and everything that lies in between um, is essential. But we also have to learn how to have the abortion conversation um, in better ways inside the context of uh, of the household of faith, inside the church, because— we have women sitting in the pews who have this as part of their lived experience.
2: Absolutely. And I'm so great, grateful that you have, you're having that conversation. It's huge. If we had people, uh, men and women, uh, to stand up in our churches on a Sunday and ask, answering the question, have you had an abortion or have you encouraged or paid for an abortion, uh, many would stand, many, many would stand if, if they were transparent enough. And so I think uh, all of us are sinners. And I think having a biblical, a thoroughly pro-life ethic uh, says that not only humans are, are created in the image of God, but all of us are broken. And so the, sometimes we tend to build categories of worthiness uh, in, Christian, in Western Christianity. And so we are, are very aware of, that the baby in the mother's womb is worthy but we're not always sure if the mother is or if the father is that 16-year-old who really made a very bad decision uh we're we're not sure if he's worthy of our respect and honor and so um i think having that robust conversation is really important as we think about our tendency to build categories of of those who are worthy and those who are not
0: so let's talk about that concept of worthiness um in your in your piece and again we're reading uh, from a piece at CrossTide. dot that you guys can find. Um, it's entitled "Becoming Better Pro Lifers." You talk about a better pro lifer seeing every life as worth the trouble.
2: Yeah, and I I think about the refugee conversation, and it's it's just current, so it's the easy one to to grab onto. Uh, much of the conversation around refugees has to do with uh, how they will affect if we take them how they will affect our way of life and the trouble that they are and and I think that's ironic i I have kids, and I say this in the post I have kids and they're a lot of trouble and um, i I love them and uh, we've We have three of our own and, and a fourth that joined us later and and so they're they're all a lot of trouble and so I think as we consider how we view people, uh, the truth is i 'm a lot of trouble. Uh, People work with me every day and they have to overlook a lot. My wife has been married to me for almost 27 years. She has to overlook a lot of things. Humans, by and large, we are trouble and uh, we are expensive and we affect other people. And so I think. As we, as we consider the refugee question, for example, we can't do everything for everyone. We understand that. There are limits. Uh, we have capacity limits in various communities and, and homes. Not everyone can take a refugee in. I, I totally understand that. And so that, that's fair. But I think it's also really important that we ask better questions and that we say, you know, not, not, not is that person worthy of our help, but how can we help? What is our responsibility in this moment to uh, to help those who are most vulnerable, those who are literally, in this case, running for their lives and looking for refuge? Um, I, how can we step into that? Not should we, not should we have compassion, not should we be kind, not should we love, but how can we express that love in a way that would uh, honor the Lord and really be helpful to a fellow human who? Um, if we were born in their situation, we would want the help of others and we would need the help of others. And there will be a day that all of us, I visit the hospital, not every week, but almost every week, uh, visiting people who are struggling. And there are nurses and doctors and caregivers that are coming around, people who were just like us a few weeks ago, very able-bodied. And so we all need one another. So I think just asking better questions helps us.
0: So I'm talking with Pastor Daryl Crouch. We are talking about what it might look like for us to be better pro-lifers in a more robust way. Uh, we are talking about a post he has at his blog site, which is crosstide.org. When we come back, we're gonna um, we're gonna talk about a co- couple other points um, in this piece. A better pro-lifer steps back to showcase Jesus' sufficiency in all things, and then a better pro-lifer makes the most noise about the gospel. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Oh, I've seen fire and I- Okay, now you just make me want to just sing along. Oh, that's a good <laughs> sing along song, man. So I'm talking yeah,
2: with Daryl. voice,
0: right? I'm talking with Daryl Crouch. He's a pastor at the Green Hill Church. Uh, he also blogs at CrossTide.org. Okay, so um, I, I like this uh, this observation about the sufficiency of Christ in all things. Talk about how I can be a better pro lifer if um, if I'm really showcasing the sufficiency of Jesus in all things?
2: Well, all of us need to take a step into this a little bit more. Uh, humility is is not a natural thing for us, but uh, John the Baptist is one of my heroes, and I look forward to meeting him one day. But uh, when he had a wonderful, prosperous ministry, people were flocking to him. But when he saw Jesus, he, he backed up, and uh, he voluntarily backed up and said, this This is the, this is the one you should follow. Uh, I'm going to decrease. He, he's going to increase and I want all of my disciples to move uh, their affiliation and I want them to, to, to follow him. He is the, he, it is his kingdom that we are after, uh, not mine. And uh, we have a lot of wonderful John the Baptist in our tribe today among conservative evangelicals. We have incredible spokespeople who, who uh, serve us so well it's just easy for any of us who have a voice and any of us in leadership to to seek to pursue our own kingdoms and to build our own tribes and to build our own audiences and to build our own uh, viewerships and so on and and there's a place for platform i'm i'm not against that i i just think that if we're going to um promote jesus we we have to step back and uh, die to ourselves and 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 not build our own kingdoms and not be worried about our kingdoms and not and then not to divide Into lesser kingdoms. Uh, A lot of us aren't sure what tribe we belong to. You know, we have friends that uh, think this way and other friends and heroes that think a different way. And we're not really sure how all that should work. And I I just think that's too much pressure. I think that uh, takes the focus off of Jesus and his kingdom. And so I think a large dose of humility would help all of us as we think about uh, how we're pointing people to Jesus rather than trying to engender a following of our own.
0: Okay, which I think leads really naturally to this point about whether or not um, I am sort of always and in all ways advocating um, for the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Or am I just pointing out, um, as my sister would say, um, are you just pointing out all the pepper? Like, she know, yeah. she would say, "It's it, you know, you're called to be salt if all you ever do yeah. as a Christian is just point out the pepper. people That doesn't mean that people are getting the salt. So talk about um, this, this making noise about the gospel.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I'm a parent and, um, I, I'm sure I, I know I learned this or heard this somewhere a long, long time ago. Our kids, we were raising our kids in church and, and it was always, you know, we don't run in church, don't run in church. And that was really important. But, um, we, somebody told us early on, you know, you need to tell them why they shouldn't run in church. Like, is is the church building so sacred it doesn't allow people to speed along? Is, is running a sin? And the, the, the truth of the matter is we don't run in church because there's other people that we might run into. There's older people, for example, elderly people in our church, that if we ran into them and knocked them down, we would dishonor them. We would hurt them. It makes them nervous when kids are running around because they have a hard time just walking around. So we... We taught, we taught our kids that we don't run in church because we want to honor people, not because running is the problem. And I think sometimes we are moralizing our ethic in a way that we're just telling people to stop running, but we're not really explaining or articulating in any kind of biblical way why that's important. And so, uh, while we watched the Super Bowl halftime show and, and it was, Terrible for a lot of different reasons, and we should uh, advocate for God, for a holiness and a decency in the public square, and we should push back against sexual immorality and sex trafficking that's so much a part of the Super Bowl event and other events like it. Um, but our biggest voice, our our outside voices, we would say, uh, should be, I think, reserved for gospel proclamation, because if we just keep telling people to stop running. They just—they don't even have a, a category. They don't even understand why that—that that would be a problem. Why is dancing uh, nude in public such a problem? Uh, God has given us this body, for example, or this is what people are buying, and so on and so forth. The other—the other, the other uh, argument that someone could make is that listen, that Super Bowl halftime show wouldn't be so uh, popular. If men weren't watching so much pornography on their phones every day, like there is a demand, we're 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 not really living out of the pro-life ethic or the gospel life that we claim to be living out uh, in private that we're talking about in public. And so there's this disconnect, I think, and that uh, we're simply moralized. We want a moralized culture without a gospelized culture, and we simply won't. We that simply will never happen. And so I think while we advocate for decency in the public square. I think our outside voice should be reserved uh, for a more thoroughly gospel pro- uh, gospel-centered proclamation and a call to uh, people to find their new life in Christ. And then he will, as we say, he'll clean us up. There's a sanctifying work that the gospel does in all of us that makes us look more like Jesus.
0: Yeah, why in the world would we expect people who aren't Christians to live by some sort of uh, a Christian or biblical ethic? I mean, that does seem a little crazy when you just lay it out there like that. Um, uh, Hey, Daryl, let's take the last 90 seconds that we have to to do just that. I want you to speak to the person who does not know yet the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ and invite them today to turn to him.
2: Mm, That's wonderful. I'd love to do that. Well, I would want that person to know And for all of us to know that God loves you very, very much. He knows you better than you know yourself. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He didn't wait for you to get things right. Uh, He has come to us in his son, Jesus, who uh, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died an innocent death. Um, Not simply as a martyr, but he died in your place paying the penalty for your sin, which is death, separation from God forever, he paid the penalty for your sin, and he con- but he did not stay in the grave, He conquered sin, death, and the grave, as God raised him from the dead on the third day. And the Bible says, "Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's not only a promise, but that's how we are saved. We call upon the name of the Lord, and right here, in the quietness of your own heart, you can say, "Dear God, I know you love me, I know I'm a sinner." I turn away from my sin, and I trust Jesus as the only Lord of my life. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for saving me, rescuing me from my sin, and thank you for giving me a home in heaven. Now help me to live for you. If you've called out to him just like that, he has saved you, he has secured you, sealed you forever, and I'd encourage you to find a a local church that will help you take your next step with Jesus.
0: And if you need help doing that, just let us know. I mean, we—that's—that's that's actually why we exist as a ministry: is to connect people, um, not only with the the saving good news of the gospel, but with the Church of Jesus Christ, His Bride. Um, we are participants, uh, one uh, of another, and we are brothers and sisters in faith, and we are all a part of the one body. And so, my brother Daryl, thank you so much for joining us today. We love being with you. You guys can read what Daryl is writing at crosstide.org. dot We'll be right back. Love it. Thanks. Okay, so as we um, survey what's happening happening in the culture, um, one of the news headlines, actually headlines all across the place, it almost doesn't matter today where you look, um, you're going to see a Bloomberg-related headline. And that's not going to be Bloomberg, the media company. That's going to be Bloomberg the guy. That's going to be Bloomberg the candidate for the nomination to be the Democrats' um, nominee as you know their candidate for president of the United States. So, Mike Bloomberg is um, he's just like rich in a way that, I mean, in terms of financially able to do whatever he wants to do in ways that are a little bit hard to describe, um, certainly beyond my ability to wrap my head around. He's already spent um, more than $300 million on ads across the country. And in all likelihood, you have seen and heard a Bloomberg ad um, when you have seen and heard ads for no other candidate. To the exclusion of every other candidate. Um, he's also about to drop $1.5 billion in an ad campaign um, to, to get you to not think about the ways in which uh, his racial comments or his um, comments related to women or his uh, past actions related to civil liberty or religious liberty um, or the way that he has been buying favor across the nation through targeted charitable spending— he is hoping that you will not pay attention to any of that and instead uh, that Democrats will actually focus on this question of electability. I'm going to have this conversation up next with Hunter Baker. Are we actually at the point where somebody can just buy the presidency? That's the conversation we're going to have next on Mornings with Carmen. I always ask you if you've been in the Word of God before you get out there into the world that God so loves, and so um, I just want to encourage you to consider that today. Where in the Word are you today? Uh, in terms of my own study, I'm in the book of Romans. Uh, that is going to be the answer to the question for a really long time because we are we have just embarked as a congregation on the study of the book of Romans, and it's likely to take a fairly long period of time since we go verse by verse. I'm also in um, in Ephesians chapter six, as I am preparing to lead a Linton devotional, um, and also in the Gospel of John, for the same reason. So there you go. Where in the Word are you today? If you need a Bible and you're interested in one that would also have wonderful study notes and access to um, uh, to teaching by Dr. Tony Evans, that's the Bible we're giving away this month. And so you can log on to myfaithradio.com and enter to win one of the copies. Uh, of the Tony Evans Study Bible, which combines lessons on kingdom living with inspirational articles and Dr. Evans' own sermons and study notes throughout the Scriptures, it's uh, it's a great resource. And if you are looking for a study Bible, it is a good one. Dr. Tony Evans Study Bible. Uh, enter to win one this week at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back.
2: I once had a teenager tell me, "My parents held me to high standards." so they'd look good, not because it was good for me. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It's tragic that some parents place more value on looking good at the cost of actually being good moms and dads. And when that happens, the world may applaud them. But let me warn you, your teen can sniff out a phony parent a mile away. They know when you're performing for the crowd instead of investing in the family. Hey, if you're afraid your kids' mistakes will be an embarrassment to your reputation, you should probably sit down and examine your motivations. Let yourself be the imperfect but authentic parent your kids need. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
0: is Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. He works every single day at the intersection of ethics and religion and politics and education. And so it's always a joy to to talk with him. Hunter, welcome back.
1: Uh, hi there. Happy to hear from you again.
0: Yeah, thank you. All right. Our our topic du jour is Mike Bloomberg. And, um, and I think that the subject du jour is, are we at the place in in our life as a nation that people are actually ready to set aside what have been their espoused convictions for generations um, simply because they believe there's a candidate who can beat the other guy? Um, And maybe an equally important question, um, are we really willing to just sell the presidency to who can ever afford the most ads?
1: Well, uh, Michael Bloomberg presents an interesting case. You have a guy who um, he originally ran for mayor in New York City um, as a Republican. Uh, However, he didn't do so because he was a Republican. He did so because he did not want to uh, try to defeat the Democrats uh, in a primary process. Um, But he did manage to succeed Rudy Giuliani. And it's, it's important to note that uh, part of how Bloomberg was able to stay in power and manage things in New York was through the use of his personal fortune. Uh, you know, a well-placed donation here or there could uh, quiet people who were against him. Um, and yes, he is, his fortune is a major factor in what's going on in the Democratic primary side right now. People think of Donald Trump as a rich man, um, but uh, Michael Bloomberg is much, much, much wealthier uh, than Donald Trump. Donald Trump, um, you know, w- when you put his assets together, you're maybe talking about uh, $3 billion, something like that. Um, Bloomberg, Bloomberg's fortune is more like $60 billion. And he owns a massive media empire as part of that. So you can see how that would be uh, extremely useful to someone who was uh, seeking to become the
0: president. So let's talk a little bit about um, his track record, uh, particularly on subjects that are supposedly of not only deep concern to all of us, but really deep concern to Democrats who are the ones making the choice um, about a nominee. Um, We've got racial uh, racial comments and racial profiling that is not only related to people of color, but we've got um, religious profiling in relationship to uh, to people in the Muslim community. We've got all kinds of track record on on women that's not any good. We've got civil liberty and religious liberty abuses, um, and we've got you know his his use of his own mammoth wealth to to target and influence cities across the country in terms of the decisions they make through his charitable giving. I mean, he's he's a bit of a master manipulator in terms of using his wealth to influence others. Uh,
1: yeah, I think that's true. Uh, to be fair, I think that he would view himself uh, as um, a benign influence, right? I mean, he, I think that his view would be that he is using his fortune for the good of the United States. So, for example, uh, one of the causes that he's super passionate about is gun control. Um, he thinks that uh, or he has thought that he could use his fortune to substantially um, increase support for gun control, that, that sort of thing. Um, now, you know, obviously, if you disagree with gun control, that's going to trouble you <laughs> tremendously that this guy with his gigantic fortune is is trying to Uh, influence those laws, but that's basically how he has operated. Uh, He has this large fortune. He thinks he can use it to achieve good outcomes, and and that's what he's doing. And and why is he running in the Democratic primary? Um, He is annoyed by the socialist rhetoric coming out of the Democratic Party. Uh, He doesn't like Donald Trump, and he doesn't like the socialist rhetoric, and so he figures he can use this fortune to try to defeat both of those influences.
0: All right. I want to um, look at one specific thing before we uh, turn to a quick break here. Um, remind people about um, Bloomberg's actions um, related to disallowing or stopping churches, but not other groups from meeting in schools in New York.
1: Yeah, that's the thing that really troubles me about him. And I worried a lot about it at the time. Um, I'm sure that listeners know, uh, in, in fact, familiar with it, probably in their own communities, churches often will meet in a public school uh, in the gym or the cafeteria um, on Sundays. And uh, that makes a lot of sense because maybe a congregation can't afford a building. Um, they would they they can afford, however, to pay the local public school and to use that space. And that's a win win. Right. Nobody would be there otherwise. And the public school can benefit from the from the support. Uh, Michael Bloomberg's view of of separation of church and state uh, is so stark and so secular that when he was mayor of New York City, he refused to allow the uh, to allow the churches to use those spaces. And that's that is a very typical arrangement. Uh, it is it is one that does not um, go against the First Amendment. Uh, And yet he fought that policy uh, to the bitter end, uh, and it did not stop until he stopped being mayor of New York.
0: Dr. Hunter Baker uh, is the dean of arts and sciences, professor of political science at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. He's the author of some really great books. One of them is entitled The End of Secularism. The other uh, that I love is The System Has a Soul – I haven't actually read Political Thought A Students' Guide, so maybe I should put that on my reading list um, so that I can then also advocate for it as well. Um, we talk to him from time to time about all kinds of things at the intersection of ethics and religion and the news. And when we come back from this very brief break, he and I are going to ask and answer the question, do religious arguments distort policy debates? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
2: This is amazing, great.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University, and, um, and Hunter, this topic that emerges from this new research related to um, how religious arguments affect policy debates, um, uh, let's just tell folks that the research centers in on the topic of assisted dying. But I think that the conversation it could be really much more wide-ranging than that, um, and, and maybe I'll just ask this question. So religion is obviously a vigorous force in politics because it's a vigorous force in the life of people. Um, and so when when scholars are asking this question, um, what are they really seeking to discover and what's the impact then on our public policy conversations today?
1: Well, it's it was interesting to me to kind of uh, read that research because I'm, I'm kind of asking myself, well, why would you treat religion differently from from any of the other ways that we sort of generate value. Um, And what I mean by that is, is that, so you take, take the word religion, um, probably comes from the word religare, uh, the things that bind us together. Um, That's what, that's what religion is broadly, right? Sort of these things that, that unify us, that unite us, Um, And of course, we live in a pluralistic society, and so we don't all have the same religion, and that creates conflict. But religion is not unique in that regard. Um, If I want to blow students' minds, I'll say something like this. Um, You basically take it very easily if somebody says they don't believe in God. You're like, okay, well, then you're an atheist. I understand that. But what if you say to somebody, I don't believe in justice? Then they'll think you're crazy. But what is the what is the material empirical proof for something like justice, right? Our belief in justice is really kind of a a supernatural belief uh, of the same type as religion. It's it is because God has put something in us that responds to that idea. Uh, so really, in my mind, almost everything in politics outside of uh you know well maybe maybe not even uh including something like what we do with the trash even that we may be able to trace some sort of a, a a metaphysical belief down deep in why we do that and how we do it all i'm saying is is that religion is not some alien factor to politics or some distorting factor to politics uh it is incredibly important to
0: politics so that's exactly the way i read this i read this uh as if um the researchers were asking a question that simply misunderstood reality uh, altogether uh, um people who for whom uh who are operating out of a core religious conviction which you know we would say is the uh, the understanding of reality as it is right i mean because i know that God is, and because I also have received this grace to know God, that influences everything. It doesn't distort politics. it It's the foundation um of a life together that's worth living together.
1: I think that's totally right and And uh, you know, what is it that Paul says to the to the men of Athens? He's looking at the statue to the, to an unknown God. I see that you are very religious. Well, that's society. Right, society is very religious. It's just that sometimes they don't name their gods uh with the specificity that we do. That's one of the things that has uh that has often troubled me about secularism is is that they act as if uh you and I forgetting about jesus christ or or forgetting about God would improve our participation in politics but actually you'd be asking us basically to to amputate the most vital part of who we are, and that doesn't really make sense.
0: All right, I'm continuing my conversation here with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University, and we're, we're talking about this conversation that's happening. It's happening, I would say, largely among academics, but the academic conversations are the ones that then tend to influence um, the conversations we're having as a culture writ large. And this is about um, whether or not religious arguments, quote unquote, distort policy debates. Um, Hunter, I'd like to move like sort of beyond the question that they ask in this piece um, and in this research and instead ask the question, Okay, so as a Christian who is interested in advancing the kingdom here and now, um, even in the midst of the political spheres and political conversations of the day, um, how does knowing what this research has, uh, has illuminated, what does knowing this uh, or how does knowing this affect the way I engage? I feel like what I'm hearing is if I could find ways to make my arguments sound less religious, um I would do better, better in the public square.
1: I think that that's I think that that's the way they see it. Um, mm-hmm. but I, but I'm not sure if that's really true. Uh, for example, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I've probably mentioned on this show before his letter from Birmingham jail, mm-hmm. uh, extremely religious, uh, but also something with with true mass appeal, right? Just because you're invoking the name of God uh, or biblical stories um, or religious ideas in a debate, it doesn't mean that you're communicating less effectively. It may actually mean that you're communicating more effectively, uh, that you are reaching people in a way that they care about uh, in a way that you might not with kind of sort of a, a, a wonky policy recitation.
0: Yeah, I'm writing here um, that reaching people at the soul level is always more important than just reaching them at the head level or even the heart level, right? It's one thing That's to move right. some of these emotions. It's another thing to actually like touch that place in them where you're like, you know, I actually know the name of your unknown God.
1: And, you know, Carmen, the uh, this all makes me think about c s lewis 's short book, People should get it: The Abolition of man mm-hmm. uh, because that 's what that book is about right That book could be addressed at the people doing this research and he he 's talking about men without chests right mm-hmm. that that we have that we have tried to deconstruct uh and pull out that soul of people you know that thing that responds to uh, to beauty and justice and, and instead uh, put something in that can easily be manipulated by marketing or propaganda or something like that. But instead, uh, we don't want to amputate that sense, right? We actually want to develop it. He talks about how academics uh, worry about hacking away at jungles of nonsense, but the reality is we need to irrigate deserts. <laughs> mm. we, need, we need to make sure there's a there there, right?
0: Absolutely. Um, Hunter, as always, uh, a great joy to talk with you. I'm going um, to walk off with a few quotes from The Abolition of Man. This is C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man. We make men without chess and expect from them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are then shocked to find traitors in our midst. Uh, Hunter Baker, as always, thank you so much. You, I guess you can find him at Union University. You can also find him uh, on all the social medias at Hunter Baker. We'll be right back. So we're encouraged in Ephesians 5 to sing and make music, um, in our hearts. Uh, and so I just wanted to, to ask you, you know, what is your heart singing today? What is your heart song today? What are the words of praise and adoration and glory, uh, and appreciation that you are lifting up to the Lord our God? What is your heart song singing today? Uh, in, and, and that's not just a, you know, contemporary Christian music question. That's a, that's a real question of scripture. What's, what's your heart song singing today? Are you singing the Psalms? Are you singing a song of lament? That could be your heart song today. It's important to um, be honest with God about the things over which we lament and about which we are confused and those things that grieve us to the soul. Uh, maybe you are singing a psalm or song of praise today. Maybe you are um, singing a, a song in your heart today um, Of desire, Uh, just recognizing your need um, for God to draw near. May God draw near to you as you draw near to him. Let your heart song sing today. We got a whole nother hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play music app.